1: a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org/podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support
2: from KQED.
3: What's up, y'all? My name is not Pendarvis Harshaw. It's Corey Antonio Rose, and I'm a production intern here at Right Nowish. When I moved here from Florida last year, all my good duties told me that San Francisco was gay Mecca, a city on a hill, the promised land for queer youth. And while there's no shortage of queer people in the Bay, the anti-blackness is real, and nobody likes to talk about it. At first, I felt angry at myself for believing the hype, confused because I didn't feel like the queer scene was for me. But, like any good journalist, I started asking questions. Where are the Black queer-owned bars in the Bay? Where do they go? And is the Bay really a safe space for Black queer folks? So this Pride Month, we're rewriting queer history by exploring where Black people have built safe spaces for ourselves and why these spaces are still necessary today. We're calling this series Searching for a Kiki. To get this story right, let me introduce Rodney Barnett, who opened San Francisco's first black-owned gay bar in 1990. And there's a reason why a space like that was needed. It
0: wasn't all just rah, 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 gay capital of the world. (laughs) So sit on down and get real
3: comfortable, because after the break, Rodney is going to give us all the tea on what it was like to build a safe space for black folks in the Bay.
2: Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today.
3: You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Decades before opening his bar, a young Rodney was injured in the Vietnam War. When he came back to California, he realized that injustice wasn't just overseas.
0: It was a lot closer to home. LAPD were going in people's homes without um, warrants, going lined up like we did in the military, and doing things to civilians that, had we done that in the war, would be considered war crimes. So... There was an organization called the Black Panther Party that was fighting against uh, police violence and poverty in the black community. So I felt responsible to join the Panther Party. I later found out that the FBI thought that it was dangerous because I was organizing a group of religious ministers to support the breakfast program.
3: You heard that right the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, Rodney now knows that the FBI had over 500 pages of surveillance documents, personal details, including the fact that he was unmarried and living with a woman. The feds used that as an excuse to get him fired from his post office job, which put Rodney on a greyhound bound for the Bay Area.
0: So not too long after that, the FBI put out 10 most wanted list against Angela Davis. And I knew Angela uh, from Southern California. And we had rallies in support of Angela. This was way before she surrendered to the police. So by the time that she was um, surrendered, we had an organization already built. They asked me to be on the national committee and move to San Jose. And I said, listen, there's one thing you need to know. I'm a gay man. And if that's a point of a source of embarrassment or anything for the committee, then you need to know that. And they said, oh, that's not a problem at all, so.
3: Tell me about your first time, I guess, getting adjusted to the gay community here in San Francisco.
0: When I first moved here, it it wasn't known as the gay capital of the United States. Most of the activity was on Polk Street, but eventually things shifted to the Castle District. They started opening more restaurants, and and the more white gay men that came, the more racist they got. And that's when we started getting carded uh, three pieces of ID to go in these bars. um, The bartender, they were always white. And they would bypass you when it was your turn to get served, and that would outrage you as well. They had goons at some of them. as security guards. Uh, there were fights that broke out. There were places that I went to that got so humiliating that I swore I would not go back because it was going to be dangerous for me or somebody else there. You know, things were so bad that um, they even created racist language to depict if a white gay guy had black gay friends or was attracted to black people, they came up with the term dinge queen, which dinge means dirty. That's how thorough the racism was.
3: We brunch now, but back in the day, the bars were the cornerstone of the queer social scene. How are you supposed to feel welcome in a community if you have to defend your humanity every time you go out? Eventually, you got the impetus to start a bar, but where did it come from?
0: You know, there was a, a bar uh, back in the 70s that Black people uh, felt kind of comfortable going to. It was not in the Castro. It's called... Bojangles. But what would happen at that bar when we left the bar is that the San Francisco Police Department was waiting outside with paddy wagons and arresting Black gay people who were standing around talking, trying to exchange numbers. So you always felt like you had to just almost run to get away from being arrested. You told me a story earlier about Denise Williams at a bar. She had a new album out, and it was so beautiful.
1: Nothing too
0: good for us. It, it turns out that she was going to be coming to and performing at one of these bars up in North Beach. We had already had bad experiences trying to get in there, with carting us with three pieces of ID and dress code. So we never really went there, but we said, OK, we're going to go see Denise Williams. And Denise Williams came out, and she started performing and singing us beautiful songs. And we started clapping and cheering. And, and then between songs, she says, wow, you guys really like the, the music. I can see that you're responding. How come there aren't more people here? And almost in unison, we all said, because it's a racist gay bar. It's not that she wasn't popular, it's because there were things restricting access to her performance. But I felt like we had an opportunity to make a difference in the community. Well, I always knew that there weren't any Black-owned gay bars in San Francisco. And this was in the late 80s, like 1989. There was a bar. It was actually called the Eagle Creek Saloon, and the owner was selling the bar. It was a white man. His name was John, actually, and I knew him. And he approached me. He said, "Rodney, do you want to buy my bar?" I said, "Wow, I'd love to. I don't know how. I don't have money, you know. Anyhow," so he said, "I "I want to sell this bar to a black man." I said, wow, okay, I'm gonna figure out how to get money together and buy this bar. Got enough money to buy the bar, and my family was active in every way to to get it going. And finally, when it uh, got uh, transferred into my name, my brothers came up. I had one brother who was a contractor, another brother who was an electrician. Uh, My brothers always knew that I was gay and I never tried to hide it, but they got a lot closer and understood uh, every aspect of, of being gay. They became friends with other gay customers and so forth, and they they weren't gay, actually, either. But anyhow, it was a good experience, good family, you know, uh, venture that we uh, went into. And uh, I never expected the bar would be just for black people. I wanted everybody to be welcome there. And uh, when it finally got turned over into my name, it it was a big relief because uh, something could have happened along the way. The neighbors could have contested uh, uh, a liquor license being transferred uh, in, in, in that building and so forth. So it was a big relief. I changed the name to the new Eagle Creek Saloon instead of just the Eagle Creek. Uh, The idea is that you keep the old name because people from different countries come looking for it and so forth. So it was was great. It was a cause for a great celebration. We wound up having eight bartenders, uh, and we had... Women DJs, which they didn't have, at least at that time, in any of these gay bars, didn't have any black DJs. And uh, so we were able to provide uh, the entertainment that people wanted, and plus uh, provide employment uh, for talented black people that weren't able to express themselves in other establishments in San Francisco.
3: And in that way, I guess it's a bar, but then it sort of functions as more like a community center.
0: Exactly. And that's what we, we call it, a community center that served alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so we celebrated people's birthdays. When they had a birthday, we had food and cakes and champagne. Our customers were very um, able to get involved. So somebody came up, well, here's a slogan, Rodney, a friendly place with a funky bass for every race. And that was perfect because we wanted to let people know everybody was invited and welcome there.
3: The new Eagle Creek Saloon had the formula for success. A dedicated clientele, a passionate owner, and a catchy slogan. It was also everything they needed to attract haters. Soon after the bar opened, the Bay Area Reporter ran a story that tried
0: to scare other people from going you know, pretty much implying, you know, somebody that got killed one time liked uh, hanging around with black people or rough trade or whatever. So, you know, they were advising people be leery of going to places like the Eagle Creek. So our customers, once again, were outraged at that. And we sat down with a couple of other customers and wrote up uh, a reply and demanding that they retract that uh, article, and they actually did. This
3: was 1991 in San Francisco, the same year Magic Johnson publicly announced that he was HIV positive, a year before AIDS would become a leading cause of death for young American men, and several years after Rodney lost a brother to AIDS.
0: I saw how, how badly he suffered uh, with the, the illness, but that was one of the things that drove me to want to do something about the AIDS epidemic. So we did fundraisers. Uh, you know, uh, eventually there were marches, candlelight vigils that uh, took place, and our bar was right on Market Street, so we would shut the bar down when people were marching by and participate in the march to City Hall, uh, demanding that uh, they fund, uh, you know, AIDS um, research. We had a group of uh, people that uh, put in a interactive video video game that showed people what safe sex was, and it might sound that that's crazy or anybody should know it, but it showed people definitely how this is a way to have safe sex and stuff. And it uh, was interactive, and it was the first of its kind, and we were um, honored to have it put in our bar. It was wasn't put anywhere else before it was put into Eagle Creek, so. It was an arcade-style machine, where the goal
3: was to pick the safest sexual option. And while a video game that teaches safe sex may sound obsolete now, most of the government-sponsored campaigns advertising safe sex as a way to prevent AIDS weren't really aimed at Black people. So Rodney giving his patrons a little education with the libation is community activism at its core.
0: One of the things that people wanted to and we never had representation in Pride, in the Gay Pride parade. That, uh, so we figured out, well, maybe we can raise money because it's expensive to do. We sold 50 cents uh, plastic cups of beer on Sunday, and a lot of people would come out, so we raised money that way. And we got an actual committee together to get the, uh, float in the parade. We had one guy, his name was Mario, he designed all these costumes for people that were going to be on the float. We had a a black lesbian woman as the DJ. She played music in the bar a lot. And my daughter was six years old, and she had a special costume made for her. And and we dressed reflecting the different generations of black people. And we're actually
3: also joined by Rodney's daughter, Sadie Barnett, who is an amazing artist in her own right. Sadie, how are you today?
2: I'm doing well, thank you.
3: <laughs> what do you remember about this parade?
2: I would have been, yeah, six or seven years old, and I definitely remember it almost as a fairy tale. You know, I remember getting going to the bar to try on my costume and just feeling so special and like a princess. I can't remember what the name on the float...
0: Well,
2: I call it, like, Black People Through the Ages because it was, like, Egyptian costumes, Victorian costumes, you know, like, throughout the arc of human history.
3: Now, I'm looking at this picture of you on this float, and Mama, when I tell you you're giving it's giving rapunzel it's giving snow white it's giving princess it's giving fairy tale i'm look- i'm i'm looking at yards and yards of fabric and i'm also is this you rodney
0: yeah that's me mm-hmm.
3: looking like a prince <laughs> come through how can it not affect you to see the
2: pride and you know the creativity and just the flyness and the fashion of you know this multiracial gay community
0: When we turned the corner, there was a roar that went out the entire length of the parade. People were cheering us and stuff, because it's clearly a different float from everybody else's float. We're not just observers, people standing on the sideline watching gay pride. We're part of it. Something happened to the economy, and uh, all the bars were kind of suffering. I didn't own the property, the building that the bar was in, and rent was skyrocketing. It was on you know, uh, Market Street, one of the most expensive uh, rental places in the uh, city, and I couldn't keep paying the rent. The landlord was making all the money. The bar closed at the end of 1993. In fact, what's so ironic is some of these bars, they came up with Black Knight right. You could come on a Wednesday night, and that's when we play black music, and we won't ask you for three pieces of ID. So that's what they had to resort to, to stay in business. And every time I would run into somebody that went to the bar, they had this feeling of, uh, wow, I wish it was still here, I wish it was still here. And to tell you the truth, last night I ran into somebody I hadn't seen in many, many years, and he realized it was me, that I had owned the bar, and he came there, had a birthday party for him, and he came up and hugged me and just started crying, you know, and talked about the need for us to get together because there's never been a place like that since then. So it uh, touched people in a uh, real meaningful way. And Sadie
3: commemorates that place. It's beauty, history, and resistance in dope art installations. Since making exhibits featuring the FBI files on her father and photos from his time with the Black Panthers, she's also built a reimagined version of the new Eagle Creek Saloon's bar, a recreation that you can actually step inside and have a kiki with a stranger, just like the OG.
2: The name of the Eagle Creek Saloon, while it was, you know, in people's hearts and meant so much to people who were there, it wasn't something that was referenced in Netflix documentaries. It wasn't something that grad students were studying. There was not a big paper trail of the Eagle Creek Saloon. And so for me, it was important to make sure that the name wasn't lost. And to do that through having really fun parties seemed like a great way to do
3: it. It's really interesting because... I come from a generation that's all about, you know, safe space, because I think it was very much introduced through institutions like education. The First time I saw safe space, I think, was in a classroom, a teacher mentioned it, It it's like, this is safe space. You know, even if you don't always feel safe within it, there is something about having that name for it. And it's what I've found out from my other interviews is that like a lot of other generations don't have that name for it. And it wasn't, you know, all about building a safe space but it but still safety was such a huge aspect of it if it wasn't called safe space what was the feeling when you were there Rodney in the eagle creek
0: you know i'm glad to hear the term safe space because i think that uh, really says says it all but no we didn't call it a safe space, but we felt safe there, and it was a space that we knew that we could go to where emotionally you wouldn't be attacked for your race or you know, your sexual orientation, and you'd be in a place where everybody else there was friendly and had a lot in common, and uh, and outside of that building, uh, we couldn't experience that uh, in in the Bay Area in most, most places.
3: Thank y'all so much. Rodney, if nobody has told you you're an American hero today, you are. Well, and Sadie, if nobody's told you that you are a keeper and continuer of history, you are.
2: Thank you. And thanks. if
3: nobody's told me that I'm hungry, I am. <laughs> so we're going to end this episode. But thank thanks. y'all so much and y'all are
0: always welcome over here at Right Now-ish. Well, thanks for inviting us. Appreciate it.
3: Thanks again to Rodney Barnett and his daughter, Sadie Barnett. You can check out upcoming works on her website at sadiebarnett.com. That's S-A-D-I-E-B-A-R-N-E-T-T-E dot com. I'm Corey Antonio Rose, and I hosted and produced this episode. The regular host of this show is Pindarvis Harshaw. The regular producer is Marisol Medina-Kadena. Jessica Plachik is the editor. Our engineer is Seal Mueller. Our engagement team is made up of Ashley Ng, Justin Ibrahimi, and Rhea Gerwal. Kiana Mogadam is the senior producer of podcasts. KQED execs are David Marcus, Holly Kernan, and Jin Chien. Right Nowish is a KQED production.